You know, we all have lots of things that depend on us. You might have children or grandchildren that depend on you. You may have a, a business that depends on you to keep things running smoothly. Or you may have a loved one who particularly needs your constant care and attention. Now, these aren't necessarily problems in and of themselves, but it's part of just being human and having responsibility. But the problem is that we can start to believe that everything depends on us. We can even start to believe that God depends on us. We start to think that maybe God's work in the world is dependent on us too. That if we don't do something, if we don't act a certain way, if we don't have enough faith, then the kingdom of God might suffer. But the reality is that God doesn't depend on us, but we do need to depend on Him. And this morning, we're going to look at two stories in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And these stories are meant to show us that God's work and the miracles of Jesus do not depend on us, but on our gracious Savior. And so if you're carrying a heavy burden this morning, what I, want, what I hope is that careful study of this passage will lift that burden off of you and lift your eyes to Jesus. And so if you've got your Bible, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 7, and if you are able, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. From Luke 7, starting in verse 1 all the way to 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who has built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does this. When Jesus heard this things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the town of the gate, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, I ask that you would warm our hearts with your word and your presence and with your love. Lord, would our study of your word encourage us? Would it strengthen us? Would it challenge us where we need to be challenged? And would it help us to be more like your son, Jesus? We pray these things in your holy and your most precious name above all names. Amen. 
You can be seated. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, our first point, we only have two this morning, but your first one is that Jesus' work doesn't depend on our worthiness. Jesus' work doesn't depend on our worthiness. I think we can get distracted by this passage, this first section in the centurion's servant, and we can make it all about the authority of Jesus. Because after all, every single miracle that Jesus works reveals his authority over the world. He has authority over sickness, he has authority over demons, and even over death itself. He has authority over then power over the winds and the waves and angels and demons. Jesus does have authority over all of it. But I don't think our first story about the centurion and his servant is about Jesus' authority. I think instead it is about the man's faith. So let's look at the story again in verse 1. After he had finished his sayings in the hearing of the people, he enters into Capernaum. So he finishes his sermon on the plain. He leaves the mountain, he leaves the plain, and he enters into the city to continue his kingdom work. And the people there in Capernaum, they've been hearing about Jesus. They've been hearing about his miracles. They've been listening to his teaching. And now somebody particularly is responding. Verse 2, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now, who's the centurion? They'd be an officer in the Roman army. They'd be somebody who is respected, who had power, who had influence. And one of his servants in his household is sick and dying. And it seems that they are at the point of death. They are almost at the end. It could be any moment now that they go. But it also mentions that the servant was highly valued by him. This doesn't mean he was a really expensive slave. Doesn't mean that it would have been costly to replace him. After all, Luke, later in his gospel in chapter 14, will use this word to describe the honored guest at a feast, someone who is highly valued. So this is not a value of money, but of honor. This is someone who the centurion cares about and loves deeply and doesn't want to die. Three, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking Jesus to come and to heal his servant. So the centurion, he's heard about Jesus along with everybody else. But instead of going to Jesus himself, he sends others on his behalf. And they go as his representatives. And this happens because the centurion is a Gentile. He is not a Jew. He is not a member of the nation of Israel. And so he goes to the Jewish leaders in his city and he asks them to intercede on his behalf to be his mediators. Now, you really only need a mediator if there's a disparity between somebody's social standing. If you need somebody to get you in the room. If you're going to go talk to a high-ranking high elected official or a celebrity, you need somebody who's going to go between you, who can get their attention so that you can chat with them. But it's remarkable that the centurion is the one who is seeking a mediator. He's the one with high social standing. He's a Roman citizen. He is an officer. Jesus is from nowhere, Nazareth, and is a wandering, itinerant, homeless rabbi. Yet the centurion believes Jesus ranks above him. And right from the beginning, we should notice what that says about his faith. And for when they came to Jesus, they plead with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to have you do this for him. I don't think we should rush past this fact or skip past this verse. This is unusual and unheard of. Because the Gentiles and Jews don't like each other. They don't get along. That's the entire conflict in the book of Acts over and over and over again. 
The Jews especially would have hated their Roman oppressors. They would have really hated those soldiers who ruled over them and were a reminder that they were a conquered nation and a conquered people. So the fact that the elders are willing to do this for the centurion, this tells us something about his character. The Jewish religious leaders are happy to do a Roman Gentile soldier a favor. He must be a man of impeccable character. And they don't just do it because they owe him a favor. It says that they do it earnestly. Earnestly they're willing to plead with Jesus. And he seems to be a righteous man, which is why the elders tell Jesus, he is worthy to have you do this for him. They believe that the centurion is worthy of a miracle. If you're someone who likes to mark up your Bible, you might want to circle or underline that phrase, he is worthy. So I think this passage hinges on it, and we're going to come back to it in a moment. But they believe that the centurion is worthy. He is worthy of God to have, to have God answer his prayers. He is worthy to have his servants healed. He is worthy of Jesus' time. After all, everybody is crowding around Jesus at this point. Right? Everybody wants to spend time with a rabbi. Everybody wants Jesus to heal their afflictions or to heal their family. Everyone wants to be the one to ask Jesus a question. Everybody wants just a moment of Jesus' time. And these elders are trying to get Jesus to see, hey, this centurion, he's worthy of your time. If anyone gets special treatment today, if anyone gets a miracle, if you're going to anybody's house, you should go to his why? Why do they say this? In verse 5, they, they tell you, because for he loves our nation. And he's the one who built our synagogue. They bring out the centurion's resume. Okay, they're reading his bona fides. They're listing some of his righteous actions. And you can tell there's a reason the centurion asks them. These seem like great people to have as a reference for you, right? And if they're going to go on your behalf. And they list two particular reasons they believe he is worthy. The first one is, for he loves our nation. Even though the centurion is a Gentile, and not a member of Israel, he loves God's people. Even though he's not a part of them, even though he could never be a full citizen, he cares for them. And he doesn't just have sympathy. It's not just like he roots for them in some sporting events when they're competing with Rome. He has love in his heart for them. And his love is tangible. It's been expressed in ways that the Jewish leaders have no problem vouching for it. He does not rule and lord over them with his soldiers as someone who's trying to crush and destroy Israel. He rules over them as somebody who loves them and who cares for them. And the second reason we see is, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. The centurion has built them a place of worship. He doesn't just care for their national pride. He seems to care for their spiritual practice. He's given credit for building them a synagogue. He seems to have paid for it. He uses influence to help get his built. He probably uses influence to protect it and to care for it because people would know, oh, that's the one that, that he built. We don't mess with that one. The centurion builds not a Roman temple but a Jewish synagogue. And the Jews are happy about it. They seem to be pleased that this Gentile would help them worship. Now, we don't know if the centurion worshipped there. We don't get a lot of details about his faith, but... You know, nobody really builds temples or houses of worship for gods that they're not interested in, at the bare minimum. At the very least, he seems to be a spiritual seeker who thinks there is something to the Jewish God. And he's willing to spend his money, his influence, and his reputation for Yahweh. He seems like someone who is worthy. He has greatly blessed Israel and is deserving of God's blessing. The Jewish leaders, they're really, they are appealing to the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember, God made promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis over and over and says, God, I will bless those who bless you. 
and I will curse those who curse you. That means if anybody blesses the nation of Israel, God is going to bless them. If anyone curses or opposes Israel, God is going to respond in kind. So the centurion has blessed Israel. As a result, the elders are saying he should be blessed. They're not just making a personal recommendation. They're making a theological one. And after hearing their report, Jesus goes with them. In verse 6, Jesus goes with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sends friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Before Jesus even gets to the house, he's interrupted and stopped on the way. Someone comes to get him. The centurion sends some friends of his to tell Jesus he doesn't need to come. Don't trouble yourself. The centurion doesn't want to take Jesus to take any more of his time. In fact, he says something else again. I am not worthy. I told you to mark it before. I would mark it again. In my Bible, I've underlined it both times and drew a line between them. The centurion doesn't believe that he is worthy. It's helpful for us to see this is why the centurion stops Jesus from coming inside. He's not being rude. He's not being disrespectful. He's not trying to keep Jesus at bay because he doesn't like him. He does so because he is acknowledging his spiritual state. He says, I am not worthy to have God come to my house. Seven, therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. He says, this is why I didn't come myself. I don't believe that I'm worthy to be in Christ's presence. I don't believe that he's worthy to have Christ in his home. He just wants Jesus to give the command. Just say the word and heal my servant. He doesn't appeal to his righteousness. He doesn't tell Jesus his resume. He doesn't tell Jesus, I deserve to have my prayers answered. He doesn't tell Jesus, I'm not like all the other Gentiles. He doesn't tell Jesus, hey, remember, I built that synagogue that you're about to go preach in. He looks at his actions and he doesn't feel worthy. He recognizes the truth of his spiritual condition. But verse 8, he gives the reason that he dares to ask Jesus, not because of his works, but because of his faith. He says, for I too am a man set under authority. Soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and one, come, and he comes, and my servant, do this and do this. He recognizes his own authority and his power. Centurion, there's somebody, they've got around 100 soldiers under them. That's not including, you know, his many servants or his household or those that he would also have under his command. And this whole story, right, has been people coming and going at the centurion's command or asking. But here in the story, what we don't have and what we see is you notice closely and look again, you don't hear a single word from the centurion's mouth. They're all spoken through other people. He doesn't even make an appearance on the scene if you were filming this. You wouldn't ever see him. And he doesn't say all of this to boast. He just does say it. He does not say it to say that, hey, Jesus, you and I, you know, we're one of a kind. What the centurion does say is, if I have authority, how much more authority do you have? If I have power, how much more power do you have, Jesus? And the centurion has faith. He believes about Jesus what the Pharisees and religious leaders so far have misunderstood. He says, Jesus, you really are God. You really have the power to heal with just a word. You don't even need to be in the same room. Just say the word. Nine, when Jesus hears these things, he marvels at him and he turns to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus is amazed at his faith. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus is surprised, okay? Jesus knows everything. But Jesus is standing there proud and marveling in it. He's enjoying the beauty of this man's faith. He's like a parent watching their child do a trick that they've already seen. Watch me again. Did you see it? Did you see it? But he's watching again, marveling in love. Look at this man's faith. He believes. Nowhere else in Israel does someone have this. 
Jesus says the centurion's faith is greater than any Jew, greater than any priest, greater than any scribe or Pharisee, greater than even any of his disciples so far. Here, this Gentile has faith. And 10, when those who had been sent, they go home, they find the servant well. The friends return to the house and the servant has been healed. Notice again, the centurion doesn't say a word. We don't really see his perspective. But the centurion saw his servant healed the moment Jesus said so, just as he believed that Jesus would. He didn't have to be told Jesus gave the command. He saw it. And Jesus works this miracle not just to show his authority. After all, we already know that Jesus can heal the sick. We know that Jesus can heal the sick with a mere word, but Jesus heals to show us what brings his work. It's not our worthiness. The centurion doesn't see this miracle because of how much money he donated to a Jewish causes. He doesn't see this miracle because his name is on a building. He sees this miracle because of his faith. Because God's work does not depend on our worthiness. And so it is with us. You know, there are times that we can be tempted to believe that our works and our righteousness are what make us worthy. We can think that our reputation makes us worthy. We can believe that, you know, being really religious and being a strong Christian, that makes us worthy of Jesus doing something on my behalf. And I've been tempted by this to think that all of my degrees and my effort, you know, makes me worthy of God doing great things for me. But God doesn't work miracles for the most worthy. God works miracles for those who have faith and who believe and who appeal not to their resumes, but to the God who can do whatever he wants with just a word. It's a reminder that we can't buy our way into salvation. You could build a thousand churches on every continent. On every continent. You could give billions to the poor. You could eradicate all sickness with your genius. But none of that will bring you salvation. Salvation can only come through faith. And without faith, our greatest works are nothing but filthy rags. They're empty actions. They're like, they can be nothing like covert narcissism disguised as altruism like some kind of congressman. To quote the theologian Taylor Swift. So first what we've seen here is that Jesus will work a miracle for somebody with great faith. Next we're going to see that Jesus can work a miracle for somebody with no faith at all. Her second point, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus' work doesn't depend on our faith. Jesus' work does not depend on our faith. One reason we're not looking at each story here individually in Luke is because you need to see them together, I think. Um, I think that if we look at them separately, we can miss the connection. We might miss, why did Luke place this story here with this story right after it? And Luke does this because he wants us to see that Jesus doesn't work miracles just because of our faith. Sometimes Jesus does it just out of compassion and grace. Verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd came with him. And after leaving the city of Capernaum, Jesus comes to a small place. All of his disciples are following him. The crowd is still coming along behind him. There might be even more people now because they've just seen more miracles. But as Jesus just gets close to the town, he hasn't gone in yet. And 12, as he drew near to the gate, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. There's a funeral procession. A widow's only son has died. And much of the town seems to be a part of the funeral. Now, we don't know why, but they're there probably because it's a great tragedy. And it's being led by the widow. So her only son has died, and it's a tragedy because she has no other children to care for her. 
She has no other family to watch over her. She has no husband to provide for her. She is all alone. And it's not just that all of her family is dead. It's her life really is over. She's not going to have anyone. This is an incredibly dangerous place for her to be financially at this time. She probably will not be able to provide for herself and will have no one to provide for her unless they do so out of mercy. And the crowd that's there knows this. And so I think they come and they mourn with her, much like any small community does when tragedy strikes. We're going to family, if a whole family is killed in a crash or a small child is murdered, the large members of the community may go to the funeral just to support, even if you don't know them. I think this is what is happening. And so when Jesus gets there, Jesus sees it in verse 13. And when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Jesus sees all of this. He sees the funeral go by, and he probably hears the tears of the widow. I imagine it's a little more than just some, some weeping or just some light tears and small crying. It's probably moaning, loud wails of anguish, especially would have been typical at this time for these funerals. But Jesus sees her, and he doesn't notice the crowd. It says he sees her, this one woman whose life is coming apart. He pays attention to her. He sees her plight. He sees her struggle. And he had compassion on her. Jesus cared about her struggle. He cared about her grief. He cares about what she's facing now and what she would face. And Jesus shows compassion. But what does that mean? Does it mean Jesus just feels bad for her? Does it mean Jesus turned to his disciples and said, oh, that poor thing, can you believe what happened? Can you believe what she's going to face now? Isn't that just so sad? Bless her heart. Now, Luke, in his gospel, he uses the word for compassion three times. The first one's here in verse 7, 13. The other one is used to describe the Good Samaritan, who sees the man who is beaten for robbers and left for dead in Luke 10, 33. And it says, the Samaritan saw him and had compassion for him. And the Samaritan's compassion is active, and it leads to him taking him and saving him and binding his wounds and making sure that he is okay. Another time it happens is in Luke 15, verse 20, in the parable of the prodigal son. It describes the father who has compassion on the prodigal son. Even though his son is a long way off and he's coming home, even though he has wasted all of his mother money and wished that his dad was dead, his father sees him, has compassion on him, and runs to go see him and hug him and give him a feast. Jesus has compassion, and Jesus' compassion is going to lead to something miraculous. His compassion is not just internal in his heart, it is active. So Jesus tells her, do not weep. Just last week we looked at what does Jesus say about those who weep in Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus is reminding that. That's why this story comes right after this. The widow is weeping now, but she is about to be blessed. The widow is mourning now, but she is about to be laughing for joy. She just doesn't know it yet. And two times in the gospel, Jesus is going to, in the gospel of Luke particularly, Jesus will tell somebody not to weep. Both times are at a funeral. Both times it results in a resurrection. You notice Jesus, he doesn't call us to stop weeping by ourselves. He doesn't tell us to just swallow the tears and figure it out. He doesn't expect us to do it alone. Jesus tells us not to weep because resurrection is coming. 14, and he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The thing that Jesus touches, it's the open casket. 
Jesus interrupts the funeral procession. He steps in front of it. The pallbearers have to stand still as he goes there. I love what the theologian Pastor Charlie Dates has said. He said that you know, Jesus never delivered a eulogy because every time Jesus showed up to a funeral, there was a resurrection. Okay, and Jesus just showed up to a funeral. There's about to be a resurrection. He goes and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus says, let there be life. Jesus says, death, you won't win today. And the voice that spoke the world into existence speaks life once again into dead bones. 15, the dead man sits up, begins to speak, and Jesus gives him to his mother. And the man immediately sits up and starts talking with Jesus. I can't help but wonder what he said. But Luke doesn't tell us. But Jesus just takes him by the hand and says, here, here's your mom. Go see her. 16, fear seizes them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. I mean, you can understand they would react this way. The crowd's in the midst of grief and sadness and weeping. It's a heavy day. And then all of a sudden, this man that they all knew was dead, Jesus just brought him back to life. And now he's walking and talking to his mom. They can't help but glorify God. They're amazed. They're out of their minds as they should be. Jesus has just brought somebody back to life. This is the first time we'll see Jesus defeat death in the Gospel of Luke. It will not be the last. It is just a warm-up. It is a foretaste of the resurrection to come. Because we're still at the beginning of the story. And the crowd rightly recognizes God has visited his people. For them, they mean that God has shown up and he has worked a miracle. They're trying to communicate that God has done something wonderful here. But they don't realize that God really has visited them. This is the day that God came to their town. Because Jesus is truly God. Jesus is a great prophet, but he's not great just because of his miracles. He's a great prophet because he is God himself. And he is a God who can bring the dead back to life. 17, this report about him had spread throughout the whole Judea, all the surrounding country. And the word of Jesus just keeps spreading because how could it not? How could you not tell people about the man who brings the dead back to life? But you notice in this story, do you notice what's different? You notice the differences between this one and the centurion? Who has faith in this story? Who asked Jesus to heal? Who asked Jesus to bring this man back to life? Who went to Jesus and begged him to come and visit them? The centurion was important and well-known. The widow's a nobody. The centurion has the greatest faith in all of Israel. The widow didn't even ask for Jesus. Centurion asks for a miracle. The widow is just weeping. She's trapped in her grief. Yet both saw miracles, and the widow sees an even greater one. This is remarkable. And this puts some holes in the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? So there are some television charlatans who will tell you that your faith will bring miracles. Tell you, if you could just have faith without doubting, God is going to do amazing things on your behalf if you would just believe. And maybe if you could even believe strong enough, if you read enough, if you sent me enough money and really had faith, then maybe God would even bring the dead back to life if you could just have faith like me. In this room, you know, we might say that we all reject that prosperity gospel. But the problem is it still infects us. We believe parts of it subconsciously. We might believe that if we just had more faith, God might answer more of my prayer requests. I think if I was just a little more faithful in my Bible reading, maybe my life wouldn't be as difficult right now. But that's not what happens here in the story. Here, nobody really has faith, but Jesus brings resurrection anyway. 
Here, nobody believes what Jesus acts. Here, nobody even prays, but Jesus shows compassion. It's a reminder that God's work does not depend on us. The greatest miracles of God, they're not dependent on our faith. They're not dependent on how much we pray. They're not dependent on how much Bible we know. They're not dependent on how good our theology is. They're not dependent on our obedience. They're dependent on the compassion of our Savior. And this is wonderful news. This is why the gospel is good news. Because our Jesus is compassionate towards sinners. Now, don't, don't make this seem like faith isn't important. We still need to have faith. We're called to have faith. And we are saved by faith alone. But it's a reminder that our God is compassionate towards those with weak faith. That our God is compassionate towards us. And we're saved not by the quality of our faith, but by the quality of our Savior, who we put our faith in. And ultimately, every single work of God is an act of compassion. Our faith doesn't command Jesus. Our faith is not a magic word that bends God to our will as if I just say in the name of Jesus, now he has to say yes to whatever it is I just asked for. God acts in his own sovereignty. After all, why did Jesus come to die on the cross? Did he come to save us because of the greatness of our faith? Did he come and die and be resurrected because we asked him to? Or did he come out of compassion? Did he come to bring the resurrection even when all hope seemed lost? Yet Jesus, he brings the dead back to life. There are plenty of places in Scripture that remind us we are saved by God's grace. That much like this young man, we were all dead in our sins until Jesus saw us and had compassion on us. When he saw our sad estate, he saw our tears and our sorrow, and Jesus adopted us and welcomed us into his family. Jesus didn't die on the cross because his disciples had great faith. He wasn't resurrected because everybody believed that he would be. They all gave up and went home and hid. Jesus did his work out of his grace and his compassion for us because we serve a gracious God. So this morning, where have we been? We've seen that Jesus' work, it does not depend on our worthiness or on our faith, but it depends on the compassion of our gracious Savior. And this is good news. So as you go throughout your week, don't believe that everything depends on you. Depend on your Savior instead. You don't have to be worthy enough. You don't even have to have great, incredible, amazing faith. But you do need to have the right Savior. And that Savior has compassion on sinners like you and me. So call out to His name and watch Him work. I'm going to close us in prayer invite our worship team to come up and lead us. And worship one more time. Lord, I thank you and I praise you that you are a compassionate Savior. Lord, that you show up in our lives, not because we are so worthy, not because we have such incredible faith, but out of your grace that is undeserved and unmerited, that we could not possibly earn, we couldn't possibly work towards, yet you love us, yet you show up for us. Yet you work miracle after miracle, many of which we do not even see yet. Lord, we thank you for your compassion. Lord, help us to, to recognize the amazing grace that you show us. Lord, would you help us to take the burdens that we place on our shoulders off and to put your yoke, which is light, on us. Lord, would we walk in your grace instead of trying to do everything on our own. We pray these holy, these things in your holy and your precious, most gracious, compassionate name.
Amen. Would you stand as we worship our Savior one more time? There's benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.